for the reading of scripture which you'll find in the gospel of saint mark chapter 9 as we continue on in the exposition uh, this morning we'll read verses 14 through 24 the gospel of saint mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 14 let us hear and attend to the word of god and when he jesus came to the disciples he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them immediately when they saw him all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought my son who uh, has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they would cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. What do you think are the most commonly referenced Bible passages? Well, John 3.16 often shows up on billboards and handheld signs. The Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23 seem to have had popular recognition over many generations. And of course, there are other Bible passages that have become popular with greeting cards and wall plaques and the like. As a matter of fact, you can Google and you can find out what are the most referenced Bible passages for a certain year uh, within certain uh, uh, sites and that kind of thing. But in the life of faith, Here in Mark chapter 9, there is a short prayer that captures the deepest soul urgency informed more fully by other passages of Scripture, even Scripture we use this morning like Psalm 77. But here in John chapter 9, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. How often that urgent prayer has been a footnote in my crying out to the Lord, praying and crying out with groanings even at times when you don't even know how to put it into words. We've talked a little bit about that. But how often the Holy Spirit of God just punctuates my prayers with this cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We've tried to capture each of uh, the chapters of of, of Mark's gospel, or caption it, I should say, And in chapter 9, we continue on this morning in chapter 9, the New Covenant Christian Gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. What do we mean by that? Well, the supernatural power and presence of the triune God personally knowable. That needs to sink in. And, of course, you need to remember that chapter 9 of Mark starts with the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God, the transcendent and the imminent. 
being of God. And so in verses 1 through 8, we've already looked at uh, this passage that the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, dramatically displays the transcendent and the imminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God in heaven on earth. Peter tells us that this record that we have and the balance of Scripture is even more certain and sure than his eyewitness account to the transfiguration. The reason I put that in the present tense, that the transfiguration displays, because every time we read this, every time we preach this, it is fresh and it is being recounted for what it means. Now, the transfiguration is not being repeated, but the meaning of the transfiguration should renew our hope and um, stir us up to greater faith. The, the sudden end of this apocalyptic vision, and that's what the transfiguration was. We expounded that. We uh, compared scripture from the other gospels about that. So the sudden end of the, apocalypt, of the apocalyptic vision uh, of the transfiguration is also a way of noting that it was divine. It was supernatural in its happening. It was beyond human limits or experience. But it was previewing a greater spiritual reality. And that greater spiritual reality, Jesus further elaborated on in verses 9 through 13. The transfiguration of, Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, gives a covenantal pledge previewing theological resurrection as more than someone returning from the dead. Remember the discussion about Elijah? They had just seen Elijah as live and well in the vision. He's in heaven. And then there was a question and a dispute about this whole literalistic interpretation that Elijah had to be reincarnated or had to come back from the dead. And the point that Jesus is making and one that we would do well to heed is that theological resurrection and, and the, the transfiguration as a preview of the glory of Christ and the theological resurrection is about more than someone returning from the dead. There are Old Testament accounts. In the very gospel itself, there are eyewitnesses of Jesus bringing people back from the dead. But theological resurrection is about more than that. And we talked more about that in that passage as well. The New Covenant Christian gospel interprets and validates Old Covenant prophecies and promises as covenantal earthly types and heavenly antitypes. The earthly types are the figure. The heavenly antitypes are the reality. Uh, the epistle to the Hebrews is just matchless in guiding us in that. And this is by more than a forced literalism of earthbound effects. And I'm warning you, and I've tried to teach you and, and challenge you on not getting tied up in these earthbound effects of forced and unnatural literalism of things in Scripture that are presented to us, particularly in terms of earthly types and heavenly antitypes. This comprehensive rubric of earthly types and heavenly antitypes was and still is the disputed key to the new covenant mysteries about the kingdom of God in heaven. If you'll remember earlier on in the uh, Gospel of Mark, Jesus taught kingdom parables. And if you don't have a key in terms of earthly types and heavenly antitypes, then you're going to blank out and either be confused or absolutely misguided about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That brings us this morning to verses 14 through 29. And I'll tell you up front, we're not going to get through the whole passage. There's too much rich uh, 
and powerful uh, message here for us to get through uh, the entire passage. So this morning we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. But it's so important to keep the context together here, particularly when we come to uh, Jesus um, punctuating this whole episode with the meaning of faith. So in verses 14 through 19, Remember, we're still in the context of the transfiguration. It's just the day after the transfiguration, and they've come down from the mountain back to where the other nine disciples were left. So the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, revealing the transcendent and the imminent divine power in the kingdom of God and heaven on earth, informs all confrontations with the world, the flesh, and the devil, past, present, and future. I want you to note that here in the context. The day after the transfiguration, when they come back down from the mountain and they come to the other nine disciples, what do they find? They find the same confrontation going on with the world, the flesh, and the devil. I couldn't help but think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. When he preached the power of God and the consuming fire of God came down and manifest and displayed the God who is God and not the false God of Baal. And the next day, after that great showdown on Mount Carmel, what happened with Elijah the prophet? It was the same as the day before. The people went on in their unbelief. The people went on in wringing their hands or or being overwhelmed by the threatening powers on earth. There was not great revival. There was not a great wholehearted turn and mass conversion of the people back to obedience and to to proclamation of faith in the God who demonstrated himself by fire. And what did Elijah do the day after Mount Carmel? He ran from Ahab and Jezebel. And so the day after the transfiguration, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down the mountain and they come to the nine disciples. And what do they find? They find the same ongoing confrontation. The same ongoing confrontation that you and I wake up today and tomorrow and repeat day after day. We are in conflict in our Christian faith with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Does it make us question the kingdom of God? Does it make us mistakenly try to force an unnatural literalism and say, well, This isn't the way we should be living. This isn't the victory that we want. This isn't the way that we understand what the victorious Christian life ought to be. So we must have missed something about the kingdom of God. It's not here. We're still waiting on it. That's not what Scripture says. And you see, all of this passage comes down to what Jesus will say to us about faith. And it's not a faith that you generate for yourself. It's not a faith about you're working up a pet rally in your soul It's about a transcendent faith that is a gift from God that carries us through the imminent challenges of living in the name of Jesus in a world that hates him. And you know what Jesus said about the world hating him? You remember, don't you? If it hated me, what do you think they're going to think about you? They're going to hate you too. Oh, it's so unsettling. We want to live in a nice little cozy um, Christian resort until... We die and go to heaven or Jesus comes back. But that's not what Jesus said. I send you as lambs among wolves into the world. When are we going to listen to what Scripture says? And when is our faith going to connect with the reality of what Jesus tells us is the way of living in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil? So this morning we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. 
The world of unbelievers are always arguing over the claims of Jesus to be the Christ of God so that past historical evidences, present personal witnesses, and future promised hopes and warnings are disputed. Now, I want to ask you something. Can I preach anything more relevant to you than that? Now, I can preach things that make you want to be at ease. I can preach things that tickle your ears. I can preach things that distract us. And I can preach things that try to keep us focused on just having our own little niche. But that's not the faithful counsel of the Word of God. And there is nothing more relevant for me as a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ than to warn you and to encourage you in faith that we are always going to hear the world of unbelievers arguing over the claims of Jesus to be the Christ of God and the things that are very clear. They're always wanting to dispute, turn upside down, to double talk all the claims of Jesus that are very clear in Scripture as it was in his day, as it continues to be, from past historical evidences. I'm preaching to you from the Gospel of Mark as a documented historical record, straight talk about who Jesus Christ is. The evidence is here. Uh, the, the, the straight talk, uh, the transfiguration. I can't make you believe that, but I'm telling you that it's historically recorded here and Peter validates it with the word of God by the witness of the Holy Spirit that we have a greater grasp of that than even Peter, James, and John did when they experienced it. We talked about John the baptizer being the Elijah who is to come and how he who is least in the kingdom of God in terms of the new covenant has greater privilege than John the baptizer whom Jesus said is the greatest culmination of all the old covenant prophets. There is not another prophet that's greater than John the baptizer. This is Elijah who is to come if you're willing to receive it. He was the forerunner of the Messiah and yet he who is least by way of privilege in the kingdom of God in terms of the gospel has greater benefit than John the baptizer did. I I didn't say that. Jesus said that. So the historical evidences, I'm not ashamed of those. I preach to you the historical documentation of Jesus' life in the book of Mark as real and true and factual and beyond human intellect, revealing wonders of God, transcendent and imminent Almighty God, Creator, who is unlike us and yet who comes like us and who is promised to be near and with us and us with Him. You can only receive that by faith. What about personal uh, ongoing witnesses? Well, we have the disciples here and and apostles and later on in uh, some of them who have their recorded writings for us and the witness we refer to apostolic Christianity We hold to the word of God. We are present witnesses as they were. My preaching to you from the the scriptures, and particularly from the gospel of Mark, as we've evidenced, is an ongoing witness to that which is not bound by time and space history, the power of the word of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit. That's my assurance. I can't convince any of you. I, I cannot make you believe this. But I can faithfully proclaim it in the power of the word of God to arrest your minds and hearts and where God has granted faith that you may be built up in the most holy faith, that there is ongoing present witness. I am not ashamed of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to be preaching to you directly from the counsel of the Holy Scriptures about what it means and our benefiting from it because it gives us future promises and warning. That's what the Apostle Paul said uh, to the um, elders in Ephesus and for the congregation there. He said, I didn't cease day and night warning you. I was ever preaching to you and teaching you the word of God and warning you. The book of Hebrews says that the elders oversee the flock so that they may give an answer with joy. Constantly looking to the promised hope that we have and trusting those things that God has said and disputing in reference to the warnings. It is a compassionate thing that we preach the warnings of the judgment of God because God is holy and He will not abide sin. He will not play around with sin. We want to rename sin in all manner of ways to try to disguise guilt or to excuse wickedness. That's the lie of the devil from the, from the beginning. You shall be as God, determining good and evil for yourselves. No, we, we preach the warnings that come from Scripture, even though the world disputes them. And there again, I want to say to you, there's nothing more relevant. You don't need me to get up here and tell you about the, the latest and greatest craze that's been labeled Christian. Christian uh, healing oils. I, look, if, if natural oils help your sinuses, then use them. But that's not the Holy Spirit, okay? We're not here to, about the greatest and latest fads that are labeled Christian. I saw a funny uh, meme on the... Uh, Facebook this week, where it said that um, a, a bookstore employee has been hired to go through and comb through all of the outdated prophecy books. <laughs> Oops, better take that one off the shelf. That one expired three months ago. That one expired five years ago. All the latest and greatest prophecy mongers. We've got to replace those books with the newest, latest, and greatest. Does it ever end? Do we get wrapped up in that? Let's go down to the Christian bookstore and get our most Recent fix on how to. How to become a Christian millionaire. That's probably a really <laughs> popular title. Uh, anyway, I could go on being sarcastic, but that's not really edifying, I don't think. So let's look at verse 14. And when Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. So it would seem that while Jesus was away on the mountain with Peter, James, and John... The remaining nine disciples got tangled up in the scribes' word and mind games. Throughout Scripture, and particularly as we've gone on in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen how the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders have tried to uh, misdirect or deny or uh, falsely accuse, and that will become even more and more evident in the life of Jesus. And the disciples are subject to this. They hear it, and here they get entangled in the mind and the word games of the scribes. Now, I want you to know that in every generation, Christian believers are confronted by this same kind of word and mind games. It comes from the world of unbelievers. They use double meaning. They try to um, get us all tied up, and they uh, deny or try to redefine words, these word and these mind games. We need to be aware of it. We need to be warned against it. We need to be uh, wise to it. So how to deal with this 
disputed word and mind games of unbelievers is the subject of much of Jesus' teaching. And it's further elaborated in the New Testament epistles. That's why it's so valuable that we be expounding and teaching and claiming the authority of the Word of God to give us clarity and understanding, to ground our faith, that we not be misguided and misdirected by the many voices that are around us claiming this and claiming that and not according to how Scripture identifies things. How well are we settled? How well are we founded in the biblical definition and the biblical meaning of things? Like, for example, the meaning of miracle. How that word has become adulterated. Or the very word gospel. I mean, I, I, seriously, I, at the grocery store the other day, I saw on the rack the, the uh, deer hunter's gospel. See how things have been adulterated that are identified for us in Scripture? Are we subject to that? Have we been wise against it? Paul writes as an example and says to not give heed to fables or to mythos, to myths. It's not just ancient myths. We read that and we seem to kind of limit it historically. Oh, he's talking about Greek myths or Jewish myths, you know, myths of, that, that have been associated with these various ways of believing or stories. Well, there are current myths. People are circulating foolish and stupid ideas related to moral life. There's a myth now that you can choose your own gender. You can be whatever you want to be. I seriously think I'm going to try that next time I have to fly. I'm going to tell the, the, the uh, ticket uh, counter, I identify as a Pomeranian and I want to be in first class. You think that'll fly? <laughs> I don't think that'll fly. But here's the lady with her Pomeranian sitting in first class. So there's myths. Old myths, new myths. I want to tell you, they're rooted in a moral consciousness. See, myths are not neutral. Myths are not just fun little ideas that people have. Myths are rooted in moral consciousness. And that's why Paul writes and says, don't give heed to these stupid things. And he goes on to give another example, genealogies. Now, at the time, of course, there were those uh, um, Judaizers who were claiming superiority of bloodline. Remember what they said about uh, Abraham to Jesus? They said, we are Abraham's children. And Jesus said, God can raise up Abraham's children out of the dirt from the rocks. That's how significant your, your, your bloodline purity claim is. It's as common as dirt. Whoa, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? We still hold on to that. Now, I'm not talking about researching your history and knowing something about your people. I'm talking about this philosophy that there is a superior and pure bloodline. It's called fascism, by the way, and it is a form of racism. We're still contending with it uh, on all sides. People who think and claim they can have and trace out a pure bloodline. But what does the scripture say? We're all born in sin. There is no pure bloodline. It's all corrupted. We are all out of the way. We are all guilty. Everyone is born in the corruption of original sin. And it manifests itself <laughs> in actual sins. And that's the whole, whole point about our claiming the purity of the blood of Jesus without an Adamic father, but a true human without original sin's guilt, but subject to the effects of original sin in body, soul, and spirit. Wow, what? only God could do that. Only God could come up with that. 
And so we keep wrangling over this and, and these kinds of distractions rather than maintaining by proclamation the purity of the gospel. Paul says these things cause disputes rather than godly edification in faith. This lesson that we have in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see more and more, is about faith as Jesus addresses it. So this episode of following the return from the Mount of Transfiguration gives a direct lesson to the disciples then and to all believers since then concerning Jesus' teaching about the nature of faith and the power of the kingdom of God or heaven on earth. That's why in verse 19 we're going to hear him lament, Oh, faithless generation! How long am I going to suffer you in this? It's a reproof. It's a solemn declaration of rebuke. But look, if you will, verse 15, where Jesus comes down from the mountain and immediately when uh, they saw him, the scribes, the disciples, the crowds, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. Does that catch your attention? Why were the people so shocked to see Jesus and urgently rushed to surround him? Well, without being specifically told in the text, what we have routinely seen uh, through the Gospel of Mark, validated by other Gospel accounts as well, is that people were eager to hear the authority and see the outward demonstrations of Jesus' works, whereby he exposed the corruption of false teaching and self-righteousness. Now, I want you to think about this for a a bit. Crowds gathered to Jesus. We often center in on the disputes and the rejection, don't we, of the scribes and Pharisees, and then later on, some of the crowd who rejected Jesus as well and cried out, crucify him. What I want us to be more appreciative of is the unnumbered multitudes who believed on Jesus. Have you just looked over that in Scripture? Many believed on him. We're told that often. Many believed on him. I know that there was a vocal group that rejected him. That's documented for us in Scripture. But that does not cancel out that there were many who believed on him. I've told you my belief that when Jesus heals someone, raises them from the dead, or expels demons, I believe he saves them. I believe those people were were saved and regenerated. I believe they were confessing, believing followers of Jesus. They were raised out of the deadness of their sin, and that Jesus manifested his power in them and demonstrated his power that we might see it and believe too. But there were many who didn't have the exorcism or who didn't have the healing or who didn't uh, have Jesus raise one of their loved ones from the dead that witnessed these things or heard his preaching. And what did the Holy Spirit of God do? He owned that to them for their soul salvation, like you and me. Jesus hasn't raised one of my loved ones from the dead. I rejoice in the record that I have in Scripture. I believe that historical record. He doesn't need to. My loved ones who have died, I believe, have gone on to heaven. They died in faith. And I believe like with Moses and Elijah, my loved ones who have died in faith are in heaven, well and good in heaven. I don't want them to come back here until Jesus comes back. Do you believe that? So do you believe that there were many people that were excited to see Jesus because they believed on him? Don't be unbelieving. Believe what the scriptures say. Now, there's another observation, I believe, that deserves consideration and application. That is, 
Jesus and three of his disciples had gone away up on the mountain. And I think it could commonly be assumed that the people were gossiping. You think people would gossip? <laughs> well, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went off. They're up on the mountain. These other nine disciples are here, and they have no power. They don't seem to be able to do anything better than the scribes. Guess what happened? They had a breakup. There's a schism. Like all human families and organizations, they've gone through a breakup. They've divided. They've gone their own way, and we don't think Jesus is coming back. Hmm. Have you considered that? How many people wring their hands, which I think people were here doing, how many people give themselves to gossip and assume the worst? Oh, it's over. It's done with. You know, it's fallen apart. Jesus is gone, and he's not coming back. I can tell you that people say that. And as a matter of fact, it's recorded in Scripture for us that people said that. Peter talks about people saying that. Oh, where is the promise of his coming? He hasn't come back. Paul says that some had taught Jesus had already come back, and you missed it. You see, those aren't new things. They make the rounds over and over. Today, people are saying that Jesus isn't coming back, or you missed it, or we have to get hyped up in some kind of Jesus may be behind you know, the next tree. Those things are not validated in Scripture. It's not the way that we are directed in faith to believe about where Jesus is and what he's doing and when he's coming back. So the obvious lesson here is to keep Jesus, his person and his work, as the central focus of Christian worship and ministry as defined by the new covenant gospel. And not getting entangled in contemporary worldly issues, distracting from the urgent meaning of Jesus, the Christ of God's return. I believe, I appreciated Elder Brown praying about the coming of the Lord Jesus this morning. That should ever be before us. I'm not pressing you with some kind of guilt thing about Jesus is coming back in the next two seconds. If, you don't, if you're not sitting on the edge of your seat trying to work yourself up into a lather that Jesus is coming back in the next two seconds, you're not really believing. That's false. That's false guilt and that's a false view. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Very plainly in Scripture, he said, nobody does. That's not for you to know. And it's not for you to try to define by all your, you know, bones and smoke. We're to trust God's word. Jesus is going to return. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, in my going to heaven, you're going to do greater works. There's a greater power in the presence of the Holy Spirit through the fulfillment of the new covenant. And here are the works of God that you should do. Believe. Now, once again, I'm telling you what Jesus has said. If you want to dispute with that, then you need to dispute with him in the scriptures. Because I'm telling you this is what the scriptures say. And so we are to keep focused. I am to keep you reminded that the Lord Jesus is going to come in his time, in the will of the Father. The Lord Jesus will be coming back. But it, not, it will not be with reference to salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe. That's why we proclaim the new covenant gospel. And that's why I'm not interested in distracting you with contemporary worldly issues. I'll make application from time to time. I'm not saying that you don't need to be aware through your news programs or through your various news feeds and you hear what's going on politically or socially in the world. I'm not saying to be naive, but I'm saying don't get that confused and don't, don't get that tied up with your hopes and promises because the world is always going to be disputing the world, the flesh, and the devil is always going to be in opposition. And you as a Christian believer are going to be 
confounded and not not settled in your faith if you're constantly listening to the confusion of the world. We hear about the contemporary worldly issues and we conclude that the world is going to end. I mean, it's almost up. We can't go on like this. When I hear of contemporary worldly issues, you know what it reminds me of? Chaos and old night. It reminds me of the ancient world and the days of the apostles and Jesus. It reminds me of the Old Testament pagan religions. Sometimes I have given you some illustrations about the pagan religions of the past and how they are very contemporaneous with the same kinds of views and practices of today. There is nothing new under the sun. Sin manifests itself in the same old ways. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's perverse. It just keeps making the cycle over and over. It's not new. It's the same old garbage of the devil. People claiming to gender shift. That's nothing new. They used to do that in the pagan temples to try to affect the continuity of being in all manner of perversions. Have you ever considered why the Old Testament holiness codes, going back to the Pentateuch, forbid certain kind of gross sins? Because that's the way the world lived. (laughs) Nothing new under the sun. The corruption of sin manifests itself in the same old ways. If you're tantalized by that, then you need to have your heart cleaned and you need to have your mind purified. Stay away from it. It's nasty. That's why it's called death. That's why scriptures use some very uh, expressive descriptions of like dead corpses, human afterbirth. God uses those kinds of descriptions to talk about the corruption of sin because it's nasty. If we find it interesting, if we find it tantalizing, if we find ourselves drawn to it, you need to be on your face before God and get off the blankety computer. Live before the face of God. You see, that's what we're called to faith to do. That's what I am here preaching earnestly for you to do. To believe. So, the transfiguration was a preview of the glorious resurrection of Jesus as the Christ of God. It was a covenantal pledge by preview. Do you know what the resurrection and the ascension are? They're God's exclamation point of the transcendent and imminent power of God present by the promises of the new covenant in his kingdom. Yeah, we are awaiting the consummation of the kingdom, but we're not awaiting the power of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom is in the person of Jesus. That brings us to verse 16. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Now, you may have a textual variant in your scripture that says he asked them. I won't get into the difference there, but the the text that I follow identifies very clearly that Jesus addressed this challenge to the scribes as the source of the argument. Jesus was defensive over the scribes' studied subtleties causing contradictions and confusion about the plain meaning of Scripture. That's one of the things that we've pointed out in expounding through the Gospel of Mark. Yes, Jesus was indignant about this. Jesus got angry about it with a holy, just anger in terms of the contradictions and the confusion 
from the plain meaning of Scripture and the fact that Jesus embodies the fulfillment of the promises of Scripture. And so as faithful Christian pastors and elders, we should also defend our flock of Christian believers by consistently preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. This is what Paul says about using the whole counsel of the Word of God. Convincing. It's not me who convinces. The Holy Spirit is the convincer. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Word of God that it's true. Convincing. Rebuking. Like Jesus rebukes the people here. Oh, faithless generation. I'm calling you to faith. There are times when I must rebuke you. I hope no one was offended a few moments ago when I rebuked you about putting your eyes before the unclean things of the world. It's a real temptation. It's a threat. We're easily ensnared by it. And so I hope you will not be offended by that. But I must rebuke you in the name of the Lord and by the power of the Spirit. Exhorting. Of all things, I hope you would receive this message this morning as exhortation. Calling you to believe. Calling you to leave your doubts. Calling you to look upward. Calling you to concentrate and look carefully at the Word of God. There are things I want to point out here that will enrich your reading. That's why I give you the study notes. Why should you just forget about that tomorrow? Why wouldn't you use these study notes knowing that we're going to go on in, John, in, in Mark chapter 9? Why wouldn't you use these study notes to, to read and to pray and to say, I want to get more. I want to chew out all the, the good stuff in this passage to build up my faith, to be exhorted beyond unbelief, to be exhorted to believe and continue believing, to keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, with all long suffering and teaching. We had a little bit of discussion this morning by way of example of preaching and teaching. That preaching is more than just teaching. I'm not giving you a lecture here this morning. I'm not simply trying to uh, further your Bible knowledge. I want you to be knowing what the Scriptures say. But beyond teaching, I am preaching to you in proclamation that this is so. This is the Word of God. It's not like listening to your favorite news show or your talking head. This is the Word of God. And we're hearing who Jesus is and what He said. So as we continue in this passage, I've given you some preview for the weeks to come. If you'll look at your study notes, we're going to go on in verses 17 through 20. In this earthly life, the flesh is ever an ever-present reality for Christian believers in three ways. Do you know the three ways that we contend with the flesh? The world, the flesh. We just talked about the world, the world of unbelievers, the scribes, and they're entangling the disciples here and the crowds among believers and unbelievers. So what about the flesh now? In what three ways do we as Christian believers continue to, in confrontation with the flesh? Well, there's the unregenerate spiritual condition of unbelievers who were dead and in their sinful opposition and rebellion against the law of God. That's what we're dealing with in the world, the opposition that comes from the flesh of the unbelievers. They're hostile. They're at enmity with God and the things of God. And if they rejected Jesus, they're going to reject us. I already mentioned that to you this morning. The second way that we as Christians have to deal with the flesh is that there is remaining corruption of sin's effects in our body. We have a conflict between our regenerated heart and the sanctifying indwelling of the Holy Spirit with remaining corruption. Here is to me one of the greatest challenges of our Christian faith and why I'm preaching to you about believing. Because we in our flesh are weak. 
We have remaining corruption. We have not yet been glorified in that promised resurrection of which Jesus' resurrection is the pledge. And we talked about the glory to come. We'll be freed. And we will have a resurrection that's more than just being raised from the dead. It's called glorification. And the greatest part about glorification, other than worshiping and delighting and having the purified presence of the Lord, is that we will have no more fight with sin. (laughs) No more temptation. No more weakness of the flesh and no more death. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you want to be delivered? Are you tired of the flesh? Flesh is wearisome. Scripture tells us that we're in a war with the flesh. The spirit lusts or desires against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And they're irreconcilable as long as we are remaining this side of glorification and the grave. See, for Christian believers, the grave is not a punishment. The grave is a necessary change. We don't fear death. Jesus has overcome death. And so the second way that we as Christians are in conflict with the flesh is from the remaining corruption that we deal with. Sin is real in our lives. And then the third way, this way I think is often overlooked, is the creaturely limitations of a common humanity, flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood. We're not deified. We don't become little gods. So one of the greatest challenges in terms of biblical ethics is how we disentangle the flesh and our humanity. Sometimes, and you'll hear me talk about this and often pray about it, we load up false guilt. We set up false sins. Sins of our making not identified by God. How do you disentangle the flesh and our humanity? And the wonder of God's restoring for us in Christ a true humanity, a true identity, a new creation, who we truly are by a new name known to God, recreated in Christ as God's child, purified, promised, and eventually glorified in terms of the flesh, but not our humanity. We have a redeemed humanity in Christ. That's being perfected, sanctified to completion by way of resurrection and glorification. You see, theological resurrection is about something more than returning from the dead. So as God's image bearers, we are flesh and blood. And this episode shows Jesus confronting and empowering the new creation of salvation over the flesh. And again, I want to ask you, is there anything more relevant than that? That in the transcendent and imminent presence of the divine being who empowers the kingdom of God on earth, the new creation of salvation overcomes the flesh and restores our humanity in Christ. Is there anything more relevant than that? And then uh, verses 21 through 27, we'll look at the devil and the demons. Okay, that's always a challenge. Yes, the devil and the demons are real created and fallen spirit beings who have been defeated by the power of Jesus as the Christ of God in pledge of the resurrection as revealed in this confrontation where Jesus is able to distinguish between deliver and restore body, soul, and spirit. I think that's going to be challenging for you to 
to receive, how Jesus deals with this episode, particularly with this father and son, what his disciples couldn't deal with as it relates to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh and the devil. This boy, his condition, and the added demonic presence in this matter. I believe that's going to be a challenge for us to hear. And then we come to the conclusion of this episode in verses 28 and 29. It's not the end of chapter 9. We still want to maintain the connection, but in verse 28 and 29, the outcome of Jesus bringing salvation through this encounter with the world, the flesh, and the devil in the case of this epileptic and demon-possessed boy further reveals and defines the meaning of faith in connection with the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth, that is, the supernatural power and presence of the triune God personally knowable. So as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, I pray the Holy Spirit would stir up your own soul and mind as it relates to these things and that you would be in prayer and that you would be reading and um, have the, the Word of God dwelling in your heart and mind richly so that you might be fortified, strengthened, and built up against the world, the flesh, and the devil. One of the ways that we're given and is validated and sanctified for us from Holy Scripture is remembering the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things we talked about this morning and how it is in pledge of the new covenant. We have a new Passover that has been sacrificed for us with greater effects, what the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of animals could not do, what the old covenant priesthood having to continue in succession because of death could not affect what all of the earthly types could only symbolize and figure, we have presented for, before us here as a reality in the person, in the incarnation, in the death, resurrection, and ascension in glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the new covenant, Lord's Supper. 